thank you for joining us for this episode of Level Up, the podcast for marketers by marketers created by love that distills best practices and strategies focused on helping marketers increase their EXP, one-up their strategy, and grow personally and professionally. We're your hosts. I'm Jordan Klaus, Client Success Partner. And I am Laura Madden, manager of our marketing strategy and services team. And today we are very excited to talk about the top five personalization myths. Number four, you won't believe it. Uh, just <laughs> kidding. I had to go like crazy buzzfeed on it. And uh, building off of the idea of myths, Jordan and I have decided to do two truths and a lie. And we have not heard these before. You are hearing our live reactions. And Jordan just informed me that she is going to be very intense and in questioning me about mine. So I'm a little nervous. But with that, Jordan let, hit me with them and I will probably be wrong. But let's okay. let's hear it. So feel free to ask any follow-up questions after I lay these facts in front of you. So these are my these are my two truths in a lie. Number one, my little brothers are identical twins, only born three minutes apart. Number two, my mom was born on Friday the 13th. Number three, six months ago, I found a stray purebred French bulldog and took him in. Okay, so I'm feeling like there were a lot of details in the one with your brothers and like it could be almost true, but maybe they were born like five minutes apart. So okay. you're like, well, it was kind of true, but like I fudged it a little bit. So that's kind of where my brain is going. Okay. I feel like I've seen your Instagram and the dog one feels true to me. But again, maybe you're being sneaky and it's like a slightly different breed or it's not a purebred or something. Feel free to ask any questions. You're <laughs> welcome to ask. Ask away. I mean... I feel like the mom one is true. I think I'm gonna, I think I'm just gonna say the the brothers, there's there's something off there. That's what I think your lie is. Final answer? Final answer. You're right, that's the lie. I don't I'm an only child. I have no brothers. Oh <laughs> I no okay. siblings at all. <laughs> I didn't I'm an only child too. I didn't even know this about us. That's so cool. I didn't know that oh either. Oh my gosh. That's why it's such a good lie because you yeah, know, it, it's like it's very convincing. But for the record, I would never do that whole five minutes, three minutes thing. That's I awful. Know. I would some never people, do that to you. Some people are sneaky, you know. But Buster was a stray in my neighborhood, and we I was looking for his owner for months, and we never found his owner. He wasn't microchipped or um, and I was gonna get I found him the day before Thanksgiving, and we were gonna give him up and then I just eventually decided to take him in and then I got a DNA test on him literally like two weeks ago and found out that he was purebred and I was like what is what is this this is so strange all right so I'm wow. ready to hear I, okay. I feel fully prepared for yours oh, I might gosh. take notes <laughs> <laughs> okay mine are kind of all in the vein of like travel and international I kind of went with a theme so number one, uh, my family has a castle in Switzerland. Number two, my favorite vacation was to Thailand. 
Number three, I went on a dance trip to Australia in middle school. A dance trip. Mm-hmm. So you did dance. You did dance. I did. What kind of dance did you do? Tap, jazz, ballet. And you did it. Did you do it through high school or did you stop in middle school? I did it through high school. I was on the dance team. Okay. That chick. Yeah. Yeah. And um, Madden doesn't strike me as a Swiss Swiss name. Are you British? No. But I am married. Okay. Fair, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> and then the favorite vacation being Thailand. So wait, what's your maiden name? Schrader. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then your favorite vacation, Thailand, I feel like is like, okay, you must have hated Thailand or something. And that's why that maybe is that could be the lie is that you absolutely despised going to Thailand. But I think you like Thai food. So I'm going to say the Thailand one is the lie. I'm going to say that it wasn't your favorite vacation. You picked the right one, and it's because I've never been to Thailand. <laughs> oh, well, we both got ours. I are know. we are we very perceptive, or are we bad liars? I don't know. Uh, maybe both. Maybe both. <laughs> that was a great icebreaker. That was a really good idea. <laughs> I love. I shouldn't have given away that. Like, reminded you that Madden is not the name I was born with. <laughs> You yeah, you should have been like, I yeah, should have just let I should just <laughs> But even then, it's not my dad's family. It's my mom's family. That's the thing. Yeah. So thing. like it doesn't it really like yeah. But a castle. Who has the castle? Well, so my my grandma, her dad was born in Switzerland. He was a shoemaker and he came on vacation to Kansas because he liked it because it was flat because Switzerland is not flat and he liked it and he stayed there so he still had like he still has like first cousins and things like that over there and apparently you can just scoop up castles like nobody's business that like they just like go into foreclosure and it's like oh yeah you want a castle like it's not as big of a deal as you might think so they just like bought it up and run it and like you can stay there and we kind of discovered this and we were you know letting them know that my grandma had passed years ago and so I'm just like note to self we need to get wow over there. that is fascinating the, pe- yeah. the people of Denver Colorado who are paying all <laughs> cash for homes need to know this so they can go just live. Go in, get you a castle over. Go somewhere. find a castle. You could still ski over there. You could still hike things. Yeah, this is true. But then, no, I don't want them buying them all up because then what will I buy with my millions and what will that you I have use for your cool fact? Right. <laughs> what will I use that people can't? Oh boy. Well, now that we've gotten our myths out of the way, and Jordan and I have discovered that we are very good sleuthers. Um, we can hop into the actual topic of this podcast, which is personalization myths. So, you know, we can all just kind of lay it out on the table that like, we like personalization, we want to do personalization, but some people might still have some personalization reservations, 
reservations about personalization (laughs) of like, but maybe like, I know I should do it, but here's maybe some reasons why I can't, why I shouldn't. Um, that might not be like 100% valid, or we might be able to like overcome some of those objections. So with that in mind, we'll kick off. I'm in a state number one and, oh, this, maybe this like a point counterpoint. I'll start it out. And then Jordan, you, you come at me like you're in high school debate. Um, so personalization myth number one, I am a marketer and I think that to personalize my data, my, all my data has to be perfect. I cannot possibly start doing any kind of personalization until I completely clean up my database because it's just going to be for nothing. If my data is a mess, my personalization is going to be a mess and it's just not going to work. Jordan, come at me. Why is that not true? I think, well, the the funny thing is <laughs> the first thing I want to do is like acknowledge your feelings that like, that's a real concern that people like that is a genuine concern. There's probably a lot of opportunity in your data for things to be fixed. And that's, and that's okay. A lot of people feel this way, but I, I think the underlying message here is your data is never going to be perfect. It's never going to be per- perfect. Um, and instead of focusing on just trying to get your data clean and, and, do a full audit of everything in your data, you have to think about what your plan is for using that data to implement certain use cases. So it basically to say like, you know, it it, it is so I, overwhelming to think, oh, I need to identify all of the issues with my data, create an action plan to fix them. And then, uh, and then I'm able to actually use the data. And I think that's where a lot of, a lot of people get stuck. Well, first, thank you for acknowledging my feelings. I feel heard. Um, I think that's really important. And I, I completely agree with the idea of like, it's never going to be perfect. Like it's the saying like progress, not perfection. Um, mm-hmm. And I think some of that is also just kind of being specific and defining what progress in personalization means for you and your business. Like, obviously, we're going to part of identifying some of those use cases is going to be creating that big old wish list of like, wouldn't it be cool if I knew all of these things about all of my customers and prospects, and I could speak to all of them one to one, and like not discounting that because that could eventually happen maybe use something like data cloud to help you activate there. Um, but, you know, there that's valid, but it's also that like maturity and crawl, walk, run mentality of maybe personalization for you if you're just doing batch and blast and you don't have any life cycle triggers. A personalization win for you could be we launch a birthday email and we and we identify two additional segments that we can use for our ongoing campaigns. Those are valid and that is progress and that is personalization more than what you're doing now. And you probably only need a few data points to do that for birthday. Let's go find, you'll probably uncover a couple things of, ooh, I only have birth month from this source. I have birth date from this source. Let's do that. Maybe we meet in the middle. We just send a birthday email the first of the month, but I'm flagging this as like, hmm, when we get to that, let's make sure we're cleaning up our birthday data and getting as much information as we can. Jordan, you brought up a great point earlier about let's educate 
like the boots on the ground of why it's important to put in the birthday data appropriately and not just default to 1-1-1900 because that's not a great personalization experience for people. Um, but that does not involve or require you to have all of your data clean. That requires you to figure out what you're using for birthday. Done. You've launched it. Hopefully you get some more revenue from it. You can call that a win. You've personalized. So I think defining what personalization means to you and what that measure of success is is really important and makes it feel less overwhelming from a data perspective because then you just have to get the those couple little points together. And, and otherwise you're just going to be a busy bee co constantly trying to find things and never getting started. It's cyclical. Your data is never going to be perfect. As soon as you uncover an opportunity, you'll find a new one. And so I think it's important to just have the routine of uh, discovering what you want to use the data for, making a plan, documenting the plan, testing and executing, mm -hmm. and then creating a feedback loop to operations. If there's a reason why you uncover why your data is inaccurate, uh, you document you know, what it is that needs to change and why it's important. I, I really liked the metaphor that you talked about, about cleaning your house before people come over. Like, as soon as they get over, the house is not going to be clean anymore. But it's all, I think, like, the metaphor is, like, you don't need to, like, clean the baseboards. You don't need to, like, fully clean the windows and do, you know, a deep clean before you're able to have anyone over to your house. Because <laughs> then you'll, you, you'll never have guests. <laughs> so, but it's the thought, it is, it is overwhelming. And I think, I think the emotional aspect of, oh my gosh, I have to go, you know, clean up all of my data. Otherwise I can't start, can be where people get stuck. Yeah. So um, bringing us to personalization myth number two, even if I wanted to, I don't have enough data on my prospects or customers to personalize the customer experience. Oh boy. Well, Jordan, number one, that's probably not true. You probably have more than you think you do. So we'll just like, there's probably more that you're going to uncover. I feel like as we were talking earlier, it's like a data onion. Like no one, everybody talks about the data lake, but what about the data onion? Because you just peel back the layers. That's you're great. Just gonna, you're just going to find more. So you probably have more than you think. But I think it's also important to think about the different types of data that you have. And we're probably thinking like you've got like your core things. I feel like people get caught up in like, well, I don't have first name for everybody. So how the heck am I going to do every anything or whatever? It's like, okay, that's fine. You know what? There are ways that you could figure out first name. Maybe you do like a data append. Maybe you do some progressive profiling to figure that out and update your preference center. I think we've all gotten those emails. Um, and all of that is going to be helpful because we won't turn this into a third party cookie podcast, but we all know that they're partially going away, are going to fully go away. And so that first party data is really important. So if you are in that instance where you're like, shoot, I do not have enough data, think about prioritizing some of that first party data because then you own it, it's yours, you'll be able to use it you know, ongoing for the future. 
And then you might have heard some inklings of like zero party data. What the heck is that? How is that even a thing? That can go into some of those like inferred preferences or explicit preferences um, that people give. So an explicit preference could be like, I straight up asked you, what, what are you shopping for? I'm a retail brand. What are you shopping for? And I say, I shop for women's jeans. Cool. That's an explicit preference. Whereas if I am kind of tracking where people are clicking in emails and I've seen hmm, Jordan has clicked on women's jeans four times in the last month, I'm going to infer that she likes women's jeans and maybe just kind of prioritize that content in the future. If I'm wrong, it's low stakes. It's not a big deal. Like that's okay. But that's again, a level of personalization. And some of those like personal preferences and shopping preferences are considered that zero party data. So again, lots of different types of data. Don't count yourself out and, you know, generalize and say, oh my gosh, I don't have these two key pieces of data for every single person in my database. So it's all for nothing. I'm throwing my papers up in the air. And so I'm done. Like, it's okay. Just like it's okay if it's not all clean. It's okay if it's not fully complete. Maybe that's where you start with what data do you have a lot of? It could be kind of an obscure thing, but you realize, oh, that's actually something that would be valuable to personalize on. Maybe it's not the most like obvious thing, but that's okay. If it's important to your customers and prospects, go for it. So I think, um, you know, that's a, a really great way to think about it. Of I think you just got to give yourself grace with all of this. I feel like this is turning into a therapy session. <laughs> I'm like, guys, it's okay. It's just personalization. You can do it. <laughs> I, 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 I just want to recap how beautiful your response was just to that myth, just for the, for folks who feel like they don't know where to start. They don't even have an, they have, they, they don't have any first party data build a, like, like we are saying loud and clear, build a first party data strategy, start somewhere. Um, and then the other thing that Laura is talking about is inferred and explicit. So you might think I don't have enough data. I don't want to go ask all of my customers to tell me what their preferences are. They're, probably still is some digital engagement data that you can use to infer preferences and just test. So if you're not sure, test it. It doesn't work. That's okay. You had a hypothesis and you tested it and now you can try something different. Um, but it's better to do something. It's better to try something than, than to be completely frozen and, and do nothing at all. Um, so I think uh, that's really well stated. Well, thank you. Um, so if we, we've, we've kind of addressed the data elephant in the room, right? Like we, that's, we call it data driven personalization for a reason. Like you, you kind of, that's one thing you can't get past. You do have to have some sort of data to do this. Right. Um, but something else that can be a roadblock or, you know, a hindrance for some people for doing personalization, aside from data, is the content of it all. So our myth number three is that I'm sitting here as a marketer and I'm saying, oh, to deliver personalized experience, I am going to need a ton 
of extra design assets. I'm going to need blog posts. I'm going to need content. I'm going to need imagery. I'm going to need photography for every single persona. My brain is going crazy with all of the different permutations and like branching of personalization. And so like for that reason, I'm out. I can't I can't do it. So Jordan, why why might that be a myth? Uh, I want to acknowledge again how I'm <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but I I do think this is not just a concern, you know, when it comes to personalization. Oftentimes, like when it comes to digital transformation, building out teams, there's a huge emphasis on the the labor that it takes to to build assets. But personalization is not about creating new assets. It's about getting the right assets that you have to the right audience at the right time. So it's just about getting folks to the content that you have. Maybe that's not top of mind for them, but now you know something about them that would lead you to believe that that could be something that they're interested in. This is this is specifically, I really like this topic about, you know, do I have to make a lot of content for personalization? This comes up a lot when we're implementing Marketing Cloud personalization, previously Interaction Studio, where a lot of folks felt the same way. If I want to create a personalized experience on my website, that I'd have to create a lot more website content, product pages or articles, blog content, when the truth is you likely already have a lot of that content. Some of it might even be evergreen content. And it's just a matter of building an experience for the user so that they are walking through the content, they're seeing different content, you're collecting their engagement with it, seeing what they're interested in, and just serving up to them things that you already have in your pocketbook. Um, it's just making sure it, it's really the opposite of making large investments and building more content and that it's trying to squeeze the juice from the lemon of the content that you already have and get the biggest bang for your buck by making sure that it gets to the right person. Yeah, I think that's completely valid and squeezing that juice of the lemon and making lemonade out of it, right? Like making it work for you. I think sometimes it can just be personalization can just mean I sent this person to a different landing page that already exists instead of just sending everyone to the same landing page. That's personalization, right? Like that can happen. Sometimes personalization can just be dynamic content um, we love a good AM script in Salesforce Marketing Cloud that's just saying, if this, then pull in either this image that I already have in my image library, I'm just going to prioritize it for this person, or change up the copy a little bit. We know copy is a lot easier to, to create than like an image. So again, what does that definition of personalization mean to you? It does not have to be, oh, this, this one person has to get a completely different and unique email than someone else. Like it does not, that does not have to be the thing. Cause guess what? They're not comparing notes to the other people. They don't know. <laughs> like it's just their own experience. So like, Oh, Jordan, what did you get from brand so-and-so today? Like, did we get something different? It's not a thing. I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe for us marketing nerds, we do that. Personalization is not content. Personalization is exp experience. And sometimes that personalization could even come in the form of suppression. If somebody has a customer a customer service case and now you're not spending ad money on them, if they've already converted, you don't need to spend more ad money on them. And that is a personalized experience as well. So, you know, just kind of getting out of the mind frame that being personalization equals content. That's not the case. Personalization equals experience.
you get you guys can't see my mind it's just like blown like mic drop jordan <laughs> that, that, was, <laughs> that was perfect and like spot on it doesn't it doesn't always have to be content but the last thing i'll leave this on is if content is an element of your personalization um we, again we won't make this a podcast about generative ai but that's a thing mm-hmm. that is going yep. to start helping people with that content and break down that barrier for having all of that content available, giving it over to the the machines and the AI of it all um, with valid prompts, with good human interaction to guide it so that you feel confident in it. But eventually that will help kind of ease that burden too for the marketer. So when content does become something that you need for personalization, generative AI can help there as well. And I bet you're going to say the same thing in the next myth. Personalization myth number four, we don't have a large enough team to focus on personalization. Like we just don't have the resources, the people to focus on this. You know, a lot of times people feel like they have, uh, they're just barely keeping the lights on, right? Like it's just a matter of like, what what can I do to make sure that the mandatory campaigns that we need to execute are getting out the door. Um, yeah. So that can I, feel real. I mean, that can feel really overwhelming too. It's like I'm already trying to keep the lights on. How do I now person? How do I add on top of that another li- level of work? Yeah, I would say similar to your statement of personalization does not necessarily equal content. I would say personalization does not necessarily equal more effort in the long run. Because some of this, like, yes, you might you have a ramp up to doing personalization, but personalization many times is in the form of dynamic content that just kind of works on its own. So where you might be doing a lot of manual effort right now to get those campaigns out the door, once you can apply some of that segmentation my guess is a lot of that manual effort will go away. Um, Personalization can also really help your teams work smarter, not harder, which probably also means you're not doing all of those manual things or you you can focus your efforts elsewhere. So you don't necessarily need, you know, more team members, different team members to do it. Now, there is typically some sort of, you know, internal enablement and education. Um, We see this a lot with clients. If it's a shift in mindset, if you've been in the grind of this is how we send, this is how we do business, it's not that you're anti-personalization, you're anti-dynamic content. It's just a different way of thinking and it can take a while. So you you need to be okay with that, again, upfront investment in that, but knowing that the payoff and that ROI is going to be probably more efficiency. Like we can't make promises, but like personalization, we get to that nirvana of personalization at scale. It's taking some of that manual work off of your team, off of your marketing team, probably off of your IT team, um, Mm -hmm. because you get a little bit of that set it and forget it. We know we don't ever truly forget it um, because we're always revisiting and optimizing, but personalization can help allow for that through that automation to make things run more smoothly. 
I think I, the other thing that that uh, we were just talking about is is leveraging other automation tools, leveraging AI to do some of the work that maybe you're doing manually. I I really like what you're saying too about it's just a, a, a shift in mindset because especially as a marketer right now and the way that marketers are incented isn't always results-based. A lot of marketers are incented by how many campaigns they execute. The irony being that the number of campaigns you execute doesn't exactly equal ROI. So I, I think that's what's really interesting too is that you you might be executing the same campaigns over and over again because that's what's on the calendar. That's what you did last year. That's what's expected of your role. But it could be preventing you from driving reasonable ROI to the bottom line. So there could be a number of campaigns that you might need to assess and understand, like, what what is the return on some of these campaigns? And maybe that is a place where you can find room to be more strategic because you can eliminate work that's not proving results. Um, Because to your point, there might be a little work up front to automate personalization in s- simply in understanding like what is the use the b- the birthday campaign you were talking about before we develop the use case we develop the campaign we execute it we create a feedback loop and once you take all those steps now you have a birthday campaign that's just running so you have one less campaign that you have to worry about each month um so the the work is worth it up front and it is a paradigm shift thinking about putting that work up front and trusting those automations to run and do and properly work. Yeah. It's like, uh, it's the digital equivalent of like mailbox money. Like, (laughs) like that birthday campaign is working. It's like, it's running and hopefully generating incremental revenue um, from that personalization. And that's where you get that ROI. So um, yeah, we're, we're all about the, the automation with the personalization. Um, we're obviously all about personalization, but our last myth that some people still hold to even just a little bit kind of in the back of your mind, it's nagging. You're like, I don't know. Um, there's still some some thinking out there that personalization can be creepy. I don't want to scare away potential customers, even if you as the, you know, the main marketing guru might not believe that maybe some of your senior leadership or some of your C-suite has that feeling and is kind of squashing any kind of personalization and you're having to potentially make the case up to do that. Or you just kind of maybe you had a bad experience in the past and you're like, oh, I'm just a little bit nervous about it. So, again, this this is valid, but we want to talk about why this might not be as much of a problem as you think. And guess what? We've got stats, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> I well, you know, talking about personalization being an experience, this is an argument that says personalization is a bad experience. So, so and worse, and what we're saying is that. You, it doesn't have to be a bad experience. Uh, you should have a strategy. You should test the thing, what you think um, will be effective, and then look at those results carefully. But in this day and age, it goes without saying that customers absolutely expect personalization. It is what you are giving them in return for collecting all of their data. I expect to have good service from my bank because they are using all of my money for their own transactions. I expect these companies who are hosting my data to be responsible with it, but also for them to do, some, do something to with all of that data. Um, and that's just where we are now is in terms of consumer expectations. So 
I think it's easy for stakeholders who are overwhelmed by the first four myths that we walk through to end it with, well, even if you did do it, how do you know that it wouldn't cross the line? So I, I think this is an easy out to get out of personalization to say, let's not even bother because here's examples of where it's been been seen as creepy. And I think the other thing too is we're still talking about how much we trust big tech companies for like listening to the information. You know, how how much of this information are we explicitly giving? How much of this are they just collecting? Yeah, I think just being trustworthy and transparent with that data. Um is is going to be the key and how you're using it. We were giving examples earlier of, you know, the the customer has that expectation and they know like, yeah, I'm giving you this so I can get better service from you. They want to really have that relationship. We see that especially with younger consumers, but it's across everywhere. We were talking about the instance of context and like does it make sense for your type of business to be asking for this information? So like a bank or financial institution, for example, it feels valid to have as part of like a preference center understanding, are you, did you just get married? Are you looking to buy a house soon? Are you expanding your family? Whatever. Those don't seem out of place to ask and people are okay with sharing that because it's like, yeah, I need your help with this. Like I am expanding my family. And so what kind of savings accounts do I need? I need your help with a mortgage. I need things like that. Now for a retail company, is it really valid for you to ask me if I'm going to buy a house mm-hmm. in the next two years? No. And that feels weird. What are you going to do with this? I don't need to tell you that. But if you ask me, do you like red or blue shirts? Yeah, sure. I'll tell you that. I'll, conversely, a bank doesn't need to know that. So I think some of it is just understanding the customer context and also we can put ourselves in the shoes. We experience this every day. We give out, to your point, Jordan knowingly or unknowingly, a lot more data on a daily basis that we probably think about. And think about, do you think it's creepy? I bet you like having those personalized recommendations in your TikTok, in your Instagram. You like the algorithms. I like how Amazon upsells me. I'm okay with it. So just understanding, putting yourself in those shoes of like how you experience personalization as a consumer can kind of help you know, ease some of those, some of those worries. And if it's done in a transparent matter where the consumer understands what their information is going to be used for, they also should, they they also should be given the option to not receive the personalized communication in return for not giving their information. So this is something that's completely optional. And what we find in our research um, in the recent uh, Salesforce report, consumer report, that 61% of consumers are comfortable with companies using relevant personal information if done in a transparent and beneficial manner. So we just want to know what it's going to be used for. We want to know that, like, is it going to improve the recommendations that you give me? Because you can see my purchase history. Maybe if I'm purchasing makeup, I love when I'm, like, able to tell you the undertones of my skin and or perfume. I'm able to tell you this kind of sense that I like. And then you can recommend a perfume to me. Like, those are very valuable customer experiences where we feel like we're getting a guided one-to-one experience 
clients were willing to give that information. But I think that your your uh, example or between the bank and retail, you know, is it appropriate for a retail store to understand the life stages that I'm in? Maybe that is appropriate for a financial system. There has to be some sort of strategy around it. But the bottom line is that it's done in a transparent and beneficial manner. And I would also add to that the conversation about privacy, which is that and folks should have the option to opt out of any of the personalization as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think the other key point of that stat is relevant information. They're happy to share relevant information, which goes back to that. It's like, I'm not just going to tell you anything about me um, just for the sake of it, because that's where the mistrust comes of like, why do you need this? Are you going to go sell this? So all of that thing is like the privacy, transparency, all of that. Um, but really, bottom line, if you're not shady, it's not creepy, right? Like that's, that's really it. Like, just be a responsible steward of data and, and you'll be just fine. Um, so that's kind of one takeaway, maybe, maybe not quite as formalized as, as we had listed out of don't be shady, but it's just a good business practice anyway. Um, but we've got a, a list of personalization best practices. So if you take nothing else away from this, if we lost you at two truths and a lie, hopefully you came back <laughs> to the end of it and you're good with this. I'll, I'll kick us off with the first three is, you know, again, be transparent about that data you're collecting and how it's being used. That really gets rid of that creep factor and just sets you up for success all, all around. Um, the next one is my favorite idea of crawl, walk, run, start small. It can, again, it can just be a couple additional segments for your ongoing sends. It can be a birthday email and build from there. Define what that success of personalization looks like for you. It's okay if it's not what your competitors are doing. They had to start small too. They didn't go from zero to 100. So just start small and you'll be good. But with that, my the last one I'll talk about is you still want to have that aspirational wish list. You still want to have that like North Star of, oh, we really want to get here. This is our ultimate goal for personalization. It helps to inform and guide kind of that backlog of things that you might uncover with your data onion um, and looking at kind of what's next and prioritizing for the future. So you don't want to dismiss those long-term goals, but break it up into what are my quick wins? How can I get this like uh, proof of concept, time to value, ROI out of the gate? And then what am I doing in the future? Um, Jordan, what are what are your takeaways? I'd say la last couple of takeaways, experiment. Write a hypothesis, experiment with A-B testing, document what the results of that test were. Uh, you can make some assumptions about how you think personalization methods will work. That's why you're never going to be fully replaced by AI because you are strategic. You are a strategic marketer. And so just build a theory around how you think the personalization method will work. Uh, and then you can use those results to determine whether or not it resonated with your customers. So stop guessing and build the strategy and be ready to fail. Like be ready to fail fast and go make the mistake and and see what comes out of it. Um, and then this last kind of takeaway, just don't give up. Personalization is a journey, not a destination. 
it is cyclical. It is something that you're going to be constantly trying to improve and understand and optimize. You're, if if you could spend an unlimited budget in marketing, all you would be doing is trying to understand your customer. And so it's just really that simple. Like it really, that's really what it comes down to. So build, build a plan, test it, see how it works. Don't give up. And lastly, but certainly not least, document your results. I think every single time you either start a new job or you're changing departments, there's a lack of documentation. And so we really don't have any history of what we've done in the past, of what our department has tried to do, what's worked, what hasn't worked. And it feels like we're always starting from square one. And I think that's where a lot of these myths come from because we're starting from square one. So document your results, learn from your mistakes, and build on top of those tests to to build a full personalization strategy. And those are my main takeaways from our podcast today. Wise words from counselor slash therapist Jordan. Feel like get up off the couch now. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, thank you for joining us for this episode of Level Up. Are you looking to continue to level up your knowledge on the latest news, technology, and marketing trends affecting marketers day to day? Stay tuned for future episodes of Level Up with new episodes coming out every other Thursday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Until next time, thank you for leveling up your marketing knowledge with us. Mm-hmm.